All right, take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We're going to have, we'll be studying these churches till we get to Thanksgiving. And then after Thanksgiving, we're going to, on Wednesday nights, we're going to break away from Revelation for just uh, the time during Christmas. And we're going to do a, a series there, and I'll, I'll let you know a little, little bit more about that in a couple of weeks. Uh, and then we'll pick back up in Revelation chapter 4 in January, and we'll just move forward from there, okay? So we've got three churches left. We've got Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, and uh, we're going to move through those. Um, one, one guy has said that many a church begins with a man, reaches out with a mission, becomes a movement, and ends up a monument. That's kind of a politically correct way of saying that many churches end with good life, but they end in death. A glorious past, but that's all that there is. This is the time of year when you turn on the television, and uh, Susan and I talk about this every year. We just don't like the TV shows that come on at this time of year. Uh, um, Halloween special episodes. And one of the, uh, we're just, neither one of us are scary movie kind of people. We don't like those kind of movies. Some people do. But uh, one of those things that's come back in the last few years along with vampires, for some reason, is zombies. You know, zombies are a big deal. Now, somebody tell me what a zombie is. Walking dead, right? You know there are zombies in Scripture? Where Anybody know where the zombies are in Scripture? When Jesus came back, rises from the grave, what does it say? That the graves gave up their people and they were walking around Jerusalem. But anyways, I'm surprised nobody's ever made a horror movie about that, but... Um, Zombies are walking dead. Well, tonight we're going to talk about a church that you could call a zombie church. It was a church that was the walking dead. It looked alive, but internally it was not. Spiritually, there was no pulse, no heartbeat. It had flatlined. Spiritually, they were a dead church. Now, uh, there's been a lot written in recent years about what makes a church alive or dead, and people asking the question, well, what does a dead church look like? And there was a pastor several years ago that came up with a list of telltale signs that a church is standing at death's door. Here are some that he said. Live churches are full of people with open Bibles. Dead churches are scattered with people with closed minds. Live churches generously support missions. Dead churches spend all their money on themselves. Live churches see the possibilities. Dead churches see the problems. Live churches plan for the future. Dead churches live in the past. Live churches say, what does God want to do? Dead churches ask, how much is it going to cost? Live churches reach out to all kinds of people, while dead churches take care of their own kind. Live churches are lighthouses in their community, while dead churches are 20-watt refrigerator bulbs. And they often keep the doors shut. Live churches evangelize. Dead churches fossilize. Tonight, we're going to do an autopsy of a dead church. We're going to ask, well, what does a dead church look like? Well, what does it act like? Well, what are the causes of it? What caused the death? Well, is there any hope for a church? that finds itself in this place. Because you see, the church at Sardis was a dead church. Look at chapter 3 in Revelation, verse 1. 
to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert. Strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea what hour I will come against you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the victor will be dressed in white clothes, and I will, be, I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So here's the, the beginning of this one. We have, again, to the angel or the messenger or the, um, the pastor or the leader, is what I believe that means, of the church in Sardis. He says, right, urgently send them this message. It is of great importance and timely. Now, Sardis was one of those cities that everybody thought was a great city and would always be around. The Greeks considered it one of their greatest cities, but by the 2nd century A.D., it was declining in influence and would eventually be a shadow of its former glory. One historian said about Sardis, it lived on its ancient prestige more than it lived on its suitability to the present. Evidently, the city of Sardis and the church of Sardis had a lot in common. Sardis would have been located about 50 miles east of Ephesus. It was considered a, a city that was virtually impregnable. It could, not be bro- it could not be gotten into. It couldn't be destroyed. It was right uh, kind of in the shadow of a mountain, so it was easy to defend. And yet twice in its history it fell due to careless negligence on the part of the people living there. In 546 B.C. it was Persian Cyrus that did it. And in 214 B.C. it was another ruler. In A.D. 17, there was a major earthquake that almost destroyed the city, but they considered it such an important city. Five trade routes came there. It was this place of of spiritual um, worship for the people of Greece and Rome that they decided to rebuild it, and so they rebuilt it all. Now, we don't know how the church got there, but what we know is by the time Revelation is written, it's already in serious danger. Now, here's what... You, you need to understand to start with. The first one on your handout is we're talking about the way Christ is characterized in this letter, and he is characterized by discernment. Discernment. This is a theme that's going through all these letters that he's able to identify who you are, and he has the power and the presence to know it. It says here in verse 1 that he is the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. I don't think that means seven different spirits. I think a better translation of that is sevenfold spirit or the perfect spirit. Seven was a a symbol for perfection, and so I think it means the perfect spirit, that it was the Holy Spirit. And the idea is that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one, and because of that, Jesus is all places at all times. He's able to see all things. Christ comprehends what's going on. Now, it's also a contrast to Sardis. It's saying that Christ is in tune with the Spirit, but the people in Sardis are not. Christ is alive, but the people in Sardis 
are not. Sometimes the most difficult spiritual condition that you can assess is your own. It's like we walk around with the fog of deception about our own spiritual condition. Um, Saturday was the day that we got our family pictures taken for the fall. Uh, we do it once a year. We, when, you know, when Maddie's born, they have, these photographers have packages where you can get a, a newborn, three-month, six-month, nine-month year picture. And we missed the newborn stage. And so we had one on the end we got to do. And so we waited till the fall when the leaves are changing. And we did a family picture. And uh, for some reason, we thought it would be a good idea in the middle of October to set that for 9 o'clock in the morning. We left the house and the temperature gauge in our van, which is off a degree or two sometimes, said 46 degrees. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever taken pictures with young kids in 46 degree weather. That is not ideal. Although we all may look like we've got some um, rouge or something on our cheeks and our nose, right? They're red. But as we're driving, it's warming up. You know, it's 845, the sun's coming up, and we can see... On, our, on that little temperature gauge, you get up to like 53, 54. It's just gradually rising. We're like, this is great. That's how we get there. It's going to be close to 60. It'll be perfect. We were getting our pictures taken at Clover Bottom. Anybody know where that is, the Clover Bottom mansion? So we were going down there, and as we were going down there, we got literally less than a mile from Clover Bottom, and all of a sudden, fog everywhere. Like, can't see through it had been no fog anywhere else. We got, and here's the thing we realized, we go, went into the fog and it got thicker as we went. We could not hardly see the driveway to get in to where we were getting our pictures taken. Now, the photographer loved it. It was the ambiance that they loved. We realized that that temperature gauge went back down to about 47. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes in life, we're able to tell what, how other people are doing. But when we try to figure out our own spiritual condition, it's like we drive into that fog. And we have a hard time understanding our own spiritual condition. And the church at Sardis was in the midst of that. Christ saw it. Even when we can't see, Christ does. Now, here's an important thing that is also mentioned here at the top about Christ. Not only is His discernment, does He comprehend it, but He cares for us. He, he knows us. I mean, here in this first part where we're talking about His discernment, He says uh, that He has the seven stars. And the idea there is the seven stars are the angels or the pastors or the leaders of the church, and He's holding them. He's, they're accountable to Him. That He is ultimately in control. That He is ultimately in power. That it's not those people that are in power, it is Christ. And he speaks to this church that is veering off course. He says, I know what's going on. And verse 1 continues. We learn the second thing that we want to see, and that is Christ confronts those who are dead. He says this. By the way, just a little note. This church receives no word of commendation. No attaboy or good job or things are going well. Doesn't give any of that. He goes immediately to the confrontation. I know your works. 
And he says, you have this picture for being alive, but you're dead. The church receives no word of commendation or congratulation. There is no word of praise. It, the only other church in this seven that is like that is Laodicea. Chuck Swindoll would describe this church as a morgue with a steeple. Vance Havner said that this is a church that had it all in the show window, but nothing in stock. And what we learn here is outward appearance or reputation can be deceiving. He says, I know your works. And it looks like, or people think that, you're alive. Sardis may have been a, a beehive of activity. There was probably a church that had some size and maybe some money and caused people to stop and take notice. It would have been known in town. She appeared to be healthy at times. It says you have a name for being alive, a reputation. It's perhaps based on its past when it may have been true. There may have been faithfulness and accomplishments in the past. There may have been some genuineness there. There had been a time when the reputation and reality matched up. There had been a day when she was doing great things for God. Now all they had was a name, an outward reputation and nothing else. And he says, I know what's wrong. <laughs> and you appear alive, but inside you're dead. Looks can be deceiving. A body that from all outward appearances appears strong and healthy can upon closer inspection be found to be racked with cancer or terminal disease. Our Lord decides that He wants to show them what the reality of their life is. Remember my dad uh, in 2003, my dad had six bypasses. What I remember them telling my dad is they had gotten back from a trip to Florida about a week before he, he ended up in the hospital. And my dad at the time was walking two and a half, three miles a day. And, and dad went into the hospital and they told him he had heart issues and they were going to do six bypasses. And I remember two nurses telling him, you are the best looking bypass pa patient we have ever had. Like we walk in, we think, well, you look good for a bypass patient. Now, the thing is, if you looked at Dad on the outside, everything looked great. Great. He's walking three miles. He's thin. I mean, y'all have seen my dad. He's, not, he's a thin guy. He was tan from Florida. He looked, you know, looked great. I remember him being on the, coming back from, uh, they, they did a heart cath and determined he knew to bypass. He came back and just looked at me. He looks like a picture of health. And yet on the inside, that wasn't the case. Sardis looked good on the outside. But when God, if you want to use these terms, did a divine CAT scan or MRI or X-ray, the diagnosis was far worse. Infected by a disease of spiritual compromise, worldly accommodation, and satisfaction with the way things were, life had ebbed out of the body and they hadn't even noticed. The church wasn't even persecuted. And part of the reason the church wasn't persecuted was because it wasn't making any kind of impact. Some of you know the story of Samson in the Old Testament. Remember Samson? What was Samson known for? Strength, right? His strength and his hair, right? And, and he thought the strength came from his hair, but the strength actually came from the Lord. But you know, Samson and Delilah, and Delilah cuts his hair and all that. 
But there's this really sad verse in Judges chapter 16, verse 20, when it's talking about Samson, and it says, He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. One preacher called Sardis the Samson church. They didn't know that the Lord was not a part of what they were doing. I got on your handout, there are five terminal illnesses that churches have to be careful of. One of those is worship of the past. Now we'll talk about the past in a minute in a positive way, but you cannot worship the past. The way we were, the way things used to be, or when so-and-so was here, or when so-and-so was around, or when we had this, or when we had that, or when this was here, or when that was here. Worship of the past. Number two, cosmetics trump character. Cosmetics trump character. The idea that the way we look or what it appears is more important than who we are. That's true in a church. That's true in life in general. By the way, these are from Chuck Swindoll, so if you get mad at him, you can call Chuck. Number three, love of tradition over love of Christ. Love of tradition over love for Christ. We're getting ready for the Lord's Supper this weekend, and I, I, um, as you're preparing for the Lord's Supper, Lord's Supper is one of the things I, I try to read illustrations and things about it a lot. Uh, to try to, to pray the Lord bring some freshness to it. And I was reading some things about, uh, somehow I got on traditions and how people think things that are part of the Lord's Supper, that just because that's the way we've always done them in their church. And uh, I read about today about a, a, a guy that went to a church for the first time, and I, I think I've told this here. I heard a preacher the other day say, uh, I may have told you this story before, and if I have, I'm sorry, I'm getting older, and that's what I do. I just tell the same story. Uh, but he, he went to this church, and he was getting ready to do the Lord's Supper, and he did the Lord's Supper, and he performed it, and he got through, and uh, everybody uh, kind of looked at him strangely, and then walked out. Nobody said anything to him because he was new, and they, you know, just thought maybe he missed something. And uh, next time Lord's Supper came up, he got the same strange looks, and had a couple people come up and say, "We, we just don't think." No offense, Pastor, but you, the way that you do the Lord's Supper is just not as meaningful. There's there's something off, and. Uh, he called up the old pastor and he said, uh, "What do you, you know?" And they went through what they were doing, and he said, "Well, sounds like you got everything right." So he went and asked a deacon, "Said what's wrong?" And he said, "Well, before the pastor would begin, he would walk over to the corner, and he would bow down and look at the space in the floor, and we all knew that he was over there meditating about what was about to happen. And you don't do that." So we're not really sure if you're ready to do this. So he called the old pastor and said, what, what, I don't remember that anywhere in the, the, the books or the seminary. What are you doing? He goes, oh, he said, I was always afraid I was going to get shot over at the carpet. And I would walk over to the radiator and I would bend over and I would make sure that all the shock had been discharged before I went to the Lord's Supper table. Well, anything spiritual about it at all, Right? But tradition had become more important than Christ. Number four, 
inflexibility. I don't mean in any way anything to do with gymnastics. Inflexibility. Resistance to change. And number five, losing evangelistic excitement. Being a church that is alive and living for Jesus requires more than a name on a marquee or a building with a steeple or regularly scheduled meetings on a weekly basis. Too many churches have a name on the sign, but they're dead on the inside. He says to Sardis, you have this reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Number three, Christ corrects those who are dying. Our God's in the resurrection business. He's continually active in bringing dead sinners to life. He's also active in breaking back to life churches that are dead. When the things appear at their worst, God is at His best. An autopsy's been performed. God is ready to declare what they need to do. He's going to tell them what needs to be done. The condition is critical, but in rapid-fire succession, the Lord is going to give him five imperatives, six steps that she must take in order to come back and be revitalized. Time was of the essence. It was critical, but they needed to follow what he prescribed. Now, the truth is, what often determines whether or not you get well is whether or not you follow the doctor's orders. Right? Most of us at some time in our life have had some sort of illness that if we just follow the doctor's orders, it could be treated easily, but if we don't, it could be very problematic. The question is whether or not we, after being assessed, do what we need to do. Um, last night, um, we... Uh, Susan had bought some steaks, and I'm the, the grill master, and so I was going to grill the steaks out, and we had a problem with our grill, and it wouldn't work. So we decided to make the steaks inside, and I got on the Internet and found Alton Brown from the Food Networks how to cook a steak in an iron skillet on the stove and in the oven, preheated the oven to 500 degrees with that iron skillet in it, put it on, put the steak on, Followed that recipe to a T, 30 seconds on one side, 30 seconds on another, put it back in the oven for about three minutes on each side, came out, those steaks were great. When I got out the second batch, I put it on the stove and was getting it out. Susan was getting the other stuff finished up and ready and getting the kids' plates and all that. And I noticed that the, the skillet was kind of a place it should have. It needed to be pushed back a little further. It needed to be in a place because it was so hot. And so I reached back over, forgetting I had taken my oven glove off, and grabbed that cast iron skillet handle. And guess what I realized? A cast iron skillet in a 500 degree oven is hot. Right? Now, at that moment, I had some choices. My first choice was to scream and yell and Luke and Eli to begin to laugh. What is going on with Daddy? Then I realized I've got to do some things. So I ran over to the sink. Cold water starts going on. Susan's getting ice in a bag. We're assessing. We're looking. We're looking for bubbles and explosions or whatever's going to happen on my hand. And The fire is feeling like it has now traveled down my arm and into my hand. And 
you know, you're, you're dealing all that stuff. Do I need to go to the doctor? Do I need to go to, is it, how bad is it? And you assess it. I went to a, um, a clinic that stays open until 8 o'clock, and um, she said, it's a good thing you came in. And they put some thing on. She told me to go to the uh, drugstore and get this stuff to put on it and then wrap it up good last night and wrap it up good today. And this is probably a good illustration because about two hours ago I took the wrap off and I'm just dealing with it. But we'll, So I'm not really following the orders completely, but... You get the picture. I had things I had to do, right? And the question is whether I'm going to do that. Well, Jesus begins to say, here are some things for the dead church to do. Here's the prescription. There's six things. First of all, he says to renounce your drowsiness. Be alert. Own guard. Awake. So what he says, he says, be alert. The idea there is to keep watch, to be vigilant and watching. That, that city had fallen twice because the people hadn't been careful and watching. Don't be like your city, is what he says. Keep watch, continually watchful. Stay awake 24-7, eyes and ears listening, ready to go. Be watchful. Recognize the danger of the enemy's presence in your territory. Realize where you've come from you get the picture that this church is almost like somebody that's taken um, cold medication. Nighttime cold medication. And having a hard time shaking that off in the morning. He says, wake up! Then it says, strengthen what remains. Revive your dedication, in other words. Make firm, establish what is salvageable. Do so quickly because they're ready to die. He says your works are not perfect or complete or fulfilled before God. Sardis was just happy with halfway or so-so or mediocre or status quo. He says get going, get fired up. Begin again to exercise your spiritual muscles that your fat, flabby body might get lean again. Get back to what works. Get moving. But don't run so fast that you forget the doctrine, which is verse 3. Remember your doctrine. Verse 3 says, Remember therefore what you have received. That's a word that means in the, in the original language, remember that stuff that you heard that has impacted your life to this very day. Remember what you heard. The message that you heard that one time. The idea there is, don't rest on former deeds, but don't leave your foundational doctrine. Keep in mind what you received about trust the moment you heard, about what you heard when you were saved, about what you were taught, about what Scripture says. Now, the difference here is to remember those things that you learned about Christ, not necessarily just we want it to be like it used to be. Um, I... I I tried to explain this at four, and I don't know that I did a good job, so I'm going to try it again. One thing that always fascinates me is that there are songs that are written, and then people cling to them at a later time for a completely different reason or a different era. For instance, uh, how many of you like the song, Give Me That Old Time Religion? All right? Heard it, know it. What I, like, what I think is interesting about that song is the guy that wrote that song wrote it several years ago. And when he wrote the song, he was upset with the way things were then, and he wanted to go back to the way things used to be. And when people sing the song now, they want to go back to the time when he 
was living when he didn't like the way it was and wanted to go back to the way it used to be. Does that make sense? Give me that old-time religion for us is the religion he didn't like. And here's the thing. In probably about 30 or 40 years, I may be singing it, meaning give me back to where I was. Now, it's not bad to say, boy, I used to like it when it was like this. The problem is when, when that's where you live. And it's especially not bad if you say, I want to hold steady to the truth of the Scripture from that. We need to remember our doctrine. The fourth thing is we should renew our devotion. It says in there in the Holman Christian Standard to keep it. The, another translation says to hold fast to it. It's a, it's a word that means continually, always, to, to put into practice what you know to be true. The idea is when you remember that, that doctrine, when you remember that stuff that you were supposed to be doing, then do it. Live it out. And before you get there, remember in verse 3, the fifth thing is we need to learn to repent. Change our mind, our direction concerning who we are and where we've been. Turn from death to life and slothfulness to watchfulness, from compromise to conviction, from weakness to strength, from forgetfulness to remembrance. Remember and repent. And then the last thing is reflect on our decision. The idea there is Think about what you're going to do. He says, if you don't do that, I'm going to come like a thief. And this is not the second coming he's talking about directly here. What he's talking about is coming in judgment then. He's talking about what's at stake. And if you don't shape up, you're going to lose out on what needs to be done. Here's the last of the four major things. Christ then challenges those who are dedicated. He says, there are few people who have not defiled their clothes. Now, in that day and time, um, one of the things that was, if you came with dirty clothes, you couldn't come to worship. That was just thing. You had to be in clean clothes to come to worship in, in their temples and those kind of things. And he says, some of you, it doesn't mean this, this doesn't mean this literally, he means figuratively, some of you have made it through okay. You've stayed firm. He says, for those of you that have, my presence is with you and you have that assurance. In fact, he says, they will walk with me. And it echoes back to the Old Testament to a guy named Enoch. And in the, uh, a guy named Enoch in the book of Genesis, it says about him that Enoch walked with the Lord and was not. And the idea is Enoch walked with the Lord and then just went with the Lord. It says that for those of you who have not dirtied your clothes, you are walking with me. And then it says, not only are you going to walk with me, you're going to walk dressed in white. Now, we talked about this in the early service on Sunday, that that is the requirement for dress at this last, or the last, the first supper in the New Kingdom, the end time supper, is that we will be in white, justified, sanctified, made whole, made complete, made completely right. So we're promised His purity. We're promised His protection, He said, and their name will never be erased from the book of life. Once your name's in the book of life, it's not going to be taken away. You don't have to worry about that. And then lastly, we're promised his praise. I love this picture. It says, I won't erase their name, but what I will do is when they come before my Father and before his angels, I will acknowledge them. You get this picture almost that uh, when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to be the one that introduces us. Now, introductions are always kind of a crazy thing for me. 
you know, I'm going next Friday. I have the privilege of being the uh, speaker at Union University's homecoming chapel. They've invited me back to be their homecoming chapel speaker, and it's a privilege, and I look forward to that. But they always want you to write an introduction. And I don't, I don't like writing introductions. As long as they say, this is Lyle, I'm okay. But they generally want more than that. And so, you know, I put on there Lyle Larson, uh, pastor at First Baptist Goodlettsville, um, grew up in Dyersburg, Union graduate, married to Susan, a Union graduate, three beautiful kids, you know. Or in West Tennessee, I can just say Phil Jett's son-in-law, and most of them know who that is. But, you know, introductions are always an awkward thing. I can't think of a better introduction than what is described here. We get to heaven, and it's time to meet the Father, and Jesus says, Dad, this is Lyle. He's with me. You go to the angels, and you see them, and they say, Jesus, who's that? Well, this is Lyle. He's mine. Y'all say hello. That's simple. He's mine. He's with me. That's all I need to hear. And he says, for those of you who faithfully are, those of you that are in me, you're going to live it out faithfully. And you're going to have that at the end. He looks at this church and he says, you're dead, but it's not over. Now, in most places, when you're dead, what does it mean? It's over. But when it comes to Christ, He's the only one that's been able to say, when you're dead, it's not over. I read about this guy that went to pastor a church in Boston, and I told 4 o'clock this, and, uh, and so y'all just have to pretend like you don't hear it, and some of you won't have a problem with that. Uh, pretend like you don't hear it if I ever decide. It's one of those illustrations that's so good I may use it someday. The guy went to Boston and... Uh, Went to a church that had a great reputation several years ago, but wasn't doing very well. And he preached his heart out for a year, a year and a half, and nothing happened. And he was just frustrated and concerned. And he, he got before him over and over and was just like, we've got to do something. You can't rest on what we've been. This is a new time. We've got people we need to reach. And he just decided to try something radical. And so on a Sunday morning, the congregation started to come in. And that morning, there was a new addition at the front of the sanctuary. In front of the pulpit was a casket. And the lid of the casket was open, but you couldn't see into it from the sanctuary. And that morning, he preached a funeral for the church located and gave their address. And he talked about how the church had gotten into this state and what Jesus would say to the church. And Instead of an invitation that day, he had people come and pay their final respects to the church. As they walked down the aisle, he said, in paying your final respects, you need to look into the casket for the full effect. And as they walked down the aisle and they came to the casket at the front and it was raised up, when they looked down into the casket, there was a large mirror shining back at them. And as they began to walk out, he just said, this church will never be alive like it can be until we are. So here's what I want you to do. Take Sardis, read it sometime this week, and ask the Lord to remove the fog and to show the condition of your heart. 
and ask Him what the prescription is for you and as a result what it is for this church to be fully alive.